Hello and welcome back to Multimodal. I'm your host, Bax T. Future. This is a podcast about GPT-3, multimodal AI models like DALI, the company OpenAI, as well as maybe its competitors like Cohere, Eleuther AI, AI21. In this podcast, I share the latest developments in this space. I may share interesting research people are working on, maybe stuff I'm working on. I share my thoughts on these products and these technologies and this research and where it could go and what it could mean for society. Sometimes I even try to make sense of this space and what happened over the past week or month and try to, uh, you know, describe these developments and sort of extrapolate where, where they could go as best as possible. I want to thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. Uh, if you've been following me on Twitter, at BAKZTFuture, if you've been following this space, uh, either the OpenAI blog or uh, other people in the community, I'm sure you know last week was a whirlwind of a week. Today, we're going to be talking about OpenAI's new embeddings endpoint, and we're going to be talking about some of their fine-tuning research, which has led to a new product called, or I guess new engine called Instruct GPT. Uh, I'm very excited to talk about those two things. I'm going to share sort of a tweet that I put out a week or two ago and sort of expand on it, and somehow that tweet relates to these product announcements as well. Um but before we get there, I actually wanted to put out a you know a pretty serious note um, in this week's episode. Um, and you know, I don't like starting off on on such a you know hard, intense note, but I think it is worth putting out there. So thank you again for tuning in. Let's get started. So um, last year, I put out an article on my Substack newsletter, bakztfuture.substack.com where I shared my big predictions for 2022. Um, I talked about things that mostly we'll see in the GPT-3 AI space, things that the company OpenAI could do in 2022, uh, you know, larger developments we'll see in this space. But towards the end of the article, I also shared in you know pretty blunt terms that I'm not optimistic about both our uh, macroeconomic as well as our geopolitical situation in this article, I think I wrote flat out that I think the U.S. may be looking at a dual front war between Russia over the Ukraine and potentially with China over Taiwan. Um, I had put out this prediction, and to be honest, I would put it out hoping it wouldn't happen. I sort of left it towards the end of the article uh, because I, I, you know, I just did not want to see that path. Um, it felt like perhaps this kind of thing could be coming, but I sort of hoped otherwise. But I captured it in writing. You can go ahead and check it out. I'm going to include the link to that article uh, in the YouTube description as well as the show notes for today's episode. Um, and uh, it's starting to feel a lot like the temperature on this topic, particularly between Russia and Ukraine, is going up. It's getting very heated, and this is a situation I've been monitoring since maybe October or November of last year. Um, it is not looking like a good situation, and you know the implications of what could happen over the next week or two or month are pretty big. Uh, I'm hoping it will be nothing. You know, I'm hoping it doesn't go anywhere. Uh, you know, it, it, there's a lot to lose in this situation. But in any case, a lot of the defining geopolitics for the next 10, 20, maybe 50 years 
may be defined by what happens over the next two weeks or so. And, you know, for me, I had put it put out the prediction, I wrote it in the article. Um, but I had also just and, and again, this is beyond logic reasoning, this is beyond data. Um, I have sort of been been getting goosebumps about this particular issue and topic since last year. And these kinds of goosebumps, whether it's my intuition or something, um, it feels a lot like that public health crisis in 2020. Um, and so for the OG YouTube viewers uh, who've been with me since the beginning, uh, before I even had a thousand subscribers, um, you know, I put out a, you know, certain public health crisis uh, YouTube, uh, you know, projections video in January 2020 where I actually calculated the number of global cases we could see um, based on existing, uh, you know, cases and trends that we were seeing in other parts of the world. That was in January 2020. And I, I had meant to do it in 2019, that video, but I was just so busy. I didn't have the time to actually go ahead and, you know, do the math and make that video. But I put it out in January 2020. The same kinds of goosebumps I got thinking, wow, the world might change entirely. Uh, within a few months, I'm getting with this thing too. Um, and I apologize for the buzzing in the background. Um, and I also, uh, you know, in, in some of the social circles, different, you know, signals across Twitter, you know, mainstream media, people I know and trust. Um, I think you're starting to feel that the conversation is starting to head there. However, I don't think most people have realized how significant uh, what could happen over the next two weeks really are how much they could change everything. It could be nothing or it could be huge. And it's just something which is very under talked about. And so one of the purposes of this podcast is sort of open talking about, you know, how do I see the role of this podcast? I, I also view this podcast partially about putting things on people's radar, putting things that I think are important, especially things that nobody is talking about. This situation is very, very serious. Uh, it's a dangerous situation. It's very tense. Um, and, you know, if things go in this uh, very, very scary direction, uh, it has a serious, serious effect on pretty much everything. Um, and this is combined with supply chain shortages, the, you know, the rising inflation, the public markets are tanking. Um, again, I, I was not hoping that last prediction <laughs> would see any fruition at all. Um, but I'm gulping thinking, oh my goodness, um, we're in for a rough few months. And depending upon what happens in the next two, three weeks or so, it could be a lot worse. So anyways, just putting that on your radar, I'm still hoping for the best. I'm hoping, you know, diplomacy will win in this scenario. And, you know, there's always ways to work together to collaborate. And so I'm hoping we may see something like that too. I think, you know, that would be a, I could take a breather, <laughs> you know, we can go ahead and dismiss the prediction <laughs> and move on with our lives. I'd rather have that scenario. Um, so anyways, uh, yeah, that was a very serious note. Um, I also, if you're, if you're watching on video, you'll notice the cool, uh, new wave panels I have in the back. I've installed the soundproofing. I, as I mentioned, the audio uh, quality was really bothering me, uh, over the last few months. So I'm hoping the audio quality is a little bit little bit better to the audio listeners. I apologize for what you've been dealing with for the past few weeks. There was just too much echo. Uh, it's, you know, a lot better now. 
So now we're going to get into, you know, sort of the, the, the meat and bones of today's episode. I want to start by talking about a tweet that I put out about a week and a half, two weeks ago. Uh, it got a you know fair amount of response from different people. So I tweeted, Google search results have become so bad over time that I have started using GPT-3 for straightforward, plain text answers to basic questions. Um, and I got some interesting responses. Using GPT-3 uh, for certain questions as well, much better than Google. Uh, would love to be seek comparisons. Could you share some? Google search has always been this bad. It's GPT that has come out of age. Um, so anyways, um, I, I don't know, like, and I, I have heard other people share this, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> growing hatred for Google search results, to put it, to put it plainly. But I don't know, like, I, I encourage you as well. Uh, I think... Google search is this interesting phenomenon. Like I'm just so used to a great product, great results. I've been using it, I guess, for over, what, 18 years, almost 20 years I've been using Google search. I I just, you know, that product has been so great. Like I don't even think about it, right? Like it's almost like a utility um, that I think I've been giving them the benefit of the doubt for the past two to three years. And the quality of these search results has just gone super, super downhill. Even basic things I look up, I cannot get a clear answer. The top results are, you know, are very obvious SEO, content marketing kinds of plays. And it's just hard to know what to trust, what to go by, where the answers even are for what you're looking for. And I think there's also just this weird, like, I don't want to get into the specifics of the vector space model. But like, it's like it, the basic idea, though, is, you know, just because you have words um, that are kind of similar doesn't actually mean what you're talking about uh, matches what it thinks you're talking about. Right. Like context is really important. Um, and so sometimes I think Google search has like a good job, maybe triangulating, triangulating some keywords. But I'm finding most of the time I'm wasting my time literally on Google search. And I never thought I'd say that. Like, I've been giving them the benefit of the doubt. I've been, you know, thinking higher of them. They have such good loyalty and respect from me that has been built up over the last 20 years that I, you know, I give them the benefit of the doubt. But it has gotten really, really bad. And so sometimes, literally, I just load up the OpenAI Playground. Right now, you know, it's pretty good for Q&A. It's very good for simple answers to basic questions. And... In, in some ways, in, in ways that even Google is not, right? Or even if Google is, it's being manipulated by content marketing and SEO, where all these people are trying to game it. And obviously, it's got so many ads, right? Um, one, of, one of my sort of criticisms about Google, especially Google search is, at this point, their business model is based on showing people ads. And so they benefit from you typing in, seeing a results page, clicking ideally on the one first, second, or third links. And even when before you click on the first and third links, you better see some some ads there for different companies and different products and you click on those, right? So that's their model. But I almost feel like the model that is possible through something like GPT-3 um, is, is, is obviously what's, what's known as plain text web search engine. 
So what does that mean? That means you type in your search query and instead of getting back links uh, from Google search, you just get back the answer, right? Kind of like how Google search right now does a Wikipedia synopsis or, you know, it, it paraphrase, like it sort of captures the, the pieces of text that may answer your search query and put them directly in the, on the search page. Um, I'm imagining something like purely plain text. Uh, like something maybe in a command line or something which feels a lot more like Wikipedia. Like there's some some media there, like images and video. But for the most part, you don't have to click any links. You don't have to go anywhere. It's just there, summarized, paraphrased perfectly on the page. Um, and so I I just it's it's just crazy. Uh, but I mean it like so it's crazy. I'm I'm using GPT three more than Google Search for a lot of these kinds of queries, but. Also, maybe, you know, you know, GPT-3 is compelling in that way, right? Like it, it can summarize things, it can paraphrase, it can maybe synthesize a lot of this information in a way Google's not doing. And at the same time, GPT-3 is cutting edge technology, whereas Google, I understand they do use machine learning as, as a part of uh, their search ranking algorithm. It's been that way for a while now, but it could very well be running on the old school I mean, the last decade version of AI technology, which is just not as good as something like GPT-3. And, you know, maybe Google search results will evolve. I guess what I'm saying is um, their business model may indicate otherwise, right? Like, I'm not sure if they're incentivized to have plain text search results to not send people to links, uh, to paraphrase, to synthesize, like to become almost like an encyclopedia or Wikipedia or something of that sort. Um, and, uh, you know, even if they do have the incentives or they can make it happen, it is such a big change to their product business model, all these core sort of assumptions um, that I don't know if any company would have the wherewithal to, to, to do such a dramatic shift. But it says a lot about Google's decline, this tweet, and it also says a lot about uh, GPT-3's potential. And I'm sure, you know, for the OG listeners and GPT-3 users, uh, Web search was one of the, you know, uh, classic GPT-3 cases, uh, use cases that came out in summer 2020. Somebody had built a simple search engine where you type in stuff and it just answers it. Even right below the search box, it would just answer it, right? Which is what Google could be like, but it's not. Now, I mean, the, the, so there's one like little caveat is, you know, I will get GPT-3 to answer, but I will also verify everything it says. I guess back through Google or other sources, right? So maybe it's it's pointless in the end. I'm just not ashamed to admit it. it you know, you can't fully trust GPT-3's factual validity sometimes, but for the most part, I, I'm finding you know it's it's accurate um, and uh, it's a lot more convenient than Google. Um, and I, again, I mean, the whole point of this tweet is you know it says a lot about Google's decline and GPT-3's potential and. Uh, the handiness of, of something like GPT-3. Um, so speaking of which, so I put this out on January 18th and then on the 25th. So about a week later, OpenAI announced a new endpoint. So introducing text and code embeddings in the OpenAI API, we are introducing embeddings, a new endpoint in the OpenAI API that makes it easy to perform natural language and code tasks like semantic search, clustering, topic modeling, and classification. Embeddings are numerical representations of concepts converted to number sequences, which makes it easy for computers to understand the relationships between those concepts. Our embeddings outperform top models in three standard benchmarks, 
in three standard benchmarks, including a 20% relative improvement in code search. Um, so we see a couple of cool diagrams, text as vectors. Here's everything laid out here. Uh, text similarity, text search, text code search. Text similarity models provide embeddings that capture the semantic similarity of pieces of text. These models are useful for many tasks, including clustering, data visualization, and classification. Uh-huh. The text search models provide embeddings that enable large-scale search tasks, like finding a relevant document among a collection of documents given a text query. Embedding for the document and query are produced separately, and then cosine similarity is used to compare the similarity between the query and each document. Embedding-based search can generalize better than word overlap techniques used in classical keyword search because it captures the semantic meaning of text and is less sensitive to exact words or phrases. And then it talks about, you know, code, <coughs> code search models as well as examples of the embedding API currently being used. Um, and so it was just, you know, interesting timing. I, I tweeted about it that, you know, Google search is really bad. GPT-3 is awesome. Uh, OpenAI put out this product. I'm excited to try it. To be honest, I have not spent too much time using GPT-3 for search-based applications, which is funny because, you know, I, I had built my own web-based search engine in like 2017. <laughs> and so I think I've been a little burnt out from this space, if I'm being honest. So I think I, I will give, give this embeddings API a spin just to see what is the state of the art like. Um, there was a little bit of a brouhaha. So somebody had tweeted their own findings for the embeddings API, uh, basically saying it, it's too expensive and, you know, a simpler, uh, model, which is a lot smaller, which is cheaper to run, um, may like in his findings was it performed better. Uh, and then somebody at OpenAI also responded and came up with their own thread, basically saying a lot of the old benchmarks no longer apply. And, you know, this is uh, also a lot of that, a lot of his criticisms were, you know, described in the paper behind the embeddings API endpoint announcement. So a little, little brouhaha, I've sort of paraphrased it here. I encourage you to check it out. Uh, I may include the links uh, in the description if you want to explore it yourself, maybe draw your own evaluations on the performance of the embeddings API endpoint, as well as cost and all things considered. Um, at the same time, Sam Altman, who's the CEO of Twitter, he put out the next day that, so basically, so somebody else, uh, Boris tweeted, he's somebody else who works at OpenAI. He's very, very active on the community forums. Shout out to Boris. Our models are available to anyone who will build the next gen search tools and commercialize them effectively. And then Sam, you know, quote tweeted it. And then he wrote, this is one of the best shots at a new $100 billion company I can think of. And so if you don't know, Sam Altman used to be the CEO of Y Combinator, which is like the Harvard for startups, uh, you know, the best startup accelerator in the world. And so, I mean, putting all of this together. So my original tweet was saying Google search is really bad, right? GPT-3 is really promising. Then OpenAI a week later, they, you know, they, they're dropped. Clearly, they've been working on this for a while, a new embeddings endpoint which makes many tasks, important tasks in search and information retrievable, a lot more superpowered through the same technology that powers GPT-3, right? A lot more usable, a lot more friendlier. Uh, and then on top of that, the people working at OpenAI are also excited to see companies get built. 
And Sam is estimating that this could be, you know, a $100 billion plus opportunity for people who leverage these search tools in new, clever, exciting ways. Um, and then finally, I want to talk about the big, uh, did I have any closing thoughts? My closing thoughts is, sorry, I, my closing thoughts is for the search thing is, um, you know, this could be a huge opportunity. I agree with Sam. Google is clearly broken. Um, and uh, I, I don't quite know how it will pan out. Perhaps there's certain verticals in search which make more sense to offer a product than others. Uh, maybe there's other ways you could segment the market, like a purely privacy security focused search. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe there's other things as well, even beyond search, right? Um, like, you know, uh, uh, um, you know, like some kind of, you know, business solution uh, that can help them stay organized, right? Um, stuff like that. So uh, anyways, this is a huge opportunity and I'm excited to play with the API myself and maybe come up with something. I wouldn't mind starting a $100 billion company or two. Uh, and then finally, and uh, so the they put out another announcement. So aligning language models to follow instructions. Uh, we've trained language models that are much better at following user intentions than GPT-3 while also making them truthful and less toxic. Using techniques developed through our alignment research, these instruct GPT models, which are trained with humans in the loop, are now deployed as the default language models on our API. And so what it's got here is a, the prompt says, explain the moon landing to a six-year-old in a few sentences. So GPT-3 in the past, let's say something like, like Da Vinci, it would have just responded with more questions. <laughs> right? Explain the theory of gravity to a six-year-old. Explain the theory of relativity to a six-year-old. Explain the Big Bang Theory to a six-year-old. Explain evolution to a six-year-old. Uh, and the new Instruct GPT, which is, you know, fine-tuned and uh, a lot less toxic and, you know, it's ideally more accurate, um, it, respond, it responded with people went to the moon and they took pictures of what they saw and sent them back to the earth so we could all see, see them. And so, we can see here instruct GPT is requires less prompting. Essentially, it requires less prompt design, less prompt engineering. And I think as a business move, it's very exciting to see that OpenAI has made it the default engine. Uh, that says a lot about their confidence in instruct GPT uh, and as well as where things could be going for prompt design, prompt development, uh, as well as, you know, the uh, the future kinds of models we may see. Uh, and so then, uh, it, I mean, it, it goes on the resulting instruct GPT models, GPT, GPT models are much better at following instructions than GPT three. They also make up facts less often, which is exciting if you're using uh, GPT three as a search engine and often show small decreases in toxic output generation, um, uh, Uh, we believe that fine-tuning language models with humans in the loop is a powerful tool for improving their safety and reliability, and we will continue to push in this direction. Uh, and then they got some results here. Uh, we find that instruct GPT models are significantly preferred on prompts submitted to both the instruct GPT and GPT-3 models on the API. This holds true when we add a prefix to the GPT-3 prompt 
so that it enters an instruction following mode. Uh, they got a cool sort of illustration here of how they've sort of fine tune it and get the data set ready for instruct GPT. Uh, There are some, they talk about limitations as well. So anyways, um, uh, this is some really exciting stuff. And again, if you follow me on Twitter, uh, I've just been asking the community in general, do you think prompt design and prompt engineering is over? Uh, is this something we needed to do in the past um, that we may no longer need to do now or in the future? Um, I'm certainly on record, like one of the big reasons I've always hated the word prompt engineering. Um, you know, I, I encourage you to check out my podcast and the newsletter article that I, you know, it's like a 40 minute podcast where I'm ranting about why prompt engineering is a bad name. Uh, one of the biggest reasons I was against that name is in theory, as AI uh, becomes more sophisticated and uh, smarter, basically, you should need less prompting over time, right? Like it should just understand what do you want? What should, what should it look like? Um, and so the resounding feedback I got on Twitter from, you know, various, uh, you know, smart people, uh, especially my DMs as well, was that uh, prompt design, prompt engineering, there's no way it's over, right? And the fundamentals in prompt design are still necessary to use something like Instruct GPT, um, as well as the whole process of building a GPT-3 application, like, you know, you, you have to come up with the prompt, then you have to sort of may probably add even with instruct GPT, like one or two more examples to get exactly the kinds of outputs you want. Uh, then you still need to write the code for your application. Then you probably need to fine tune that instruct GPT model if it's possible. And then fine tuning, you know, getting that data set together and, you know, training it, like it's still uh, a fair amount of work. Right. Um, and so uh, the re resounding feedback I hear is is no. However, I would push back a bit. I would I would push push back a bit. This is a significant move on OpenAI's part. Uh, it says a lot about their confidence in this approach. Um, and again, I try not to even talk about today. I'm always trying to speak like a year or two, five years from now. Um, I think the whole prompt thing, as cool as this, you know phenomenon is right i you know i believe there's such a thing as prompt design some people have a knack for it um as 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 cool as it is uh, the the fact that you need to write a prompt does inherently slow down gpt3's virality uh many people just prefer something like instruct gpt especially if it's their first time um and it lets them immediately see the things that GPT-3 is capable of, get back meaningful results. Um, and once they've got that taste of it, uh, then they could perhaps look into something like prompt design or engineering if they actually need it. But for now, I mean, up, up until this point before, you know, instruct GPT, um, it hasn't quite been that great, you know, like sort of like that first example where it's asking to describe like the moon landing to a six-year-old. GPT-3 used to do that, right? Like it would just come up with a list of questions. And <clears throat> as a magic experience, that's not the best for a first time user, right? Uh, they're like, I don't get what's going on. And then they, they're like, oh, I can retry it. Then they retry it. They may get their answer. They may not. 
And then if they're, if they don't get their answer, then they're going to ask around, how come I didn't get my answer? And then people tell them, Oh, you got to learn this thing called prompt design. And so then it's like, Oh, I got to learn this thing called prompt design. Then they may finally get that magic experience. Right. And so this instruct GPT is really exciting because they can get that magic experience a lot sooner. Right. And once they get it, they, you know, they see the value, they feel the value, then they can perhaps consider learning something like prompt design. Uh, the instruct engines, to be clear, have been around for a while now. But even by using this current one, um, it seems a lot better than it did roughly a year ago. Uh, and so anyways, uh, this is a really exciting development. Um, you know, OpenAI has just been executing two really big announcements in one week. Uh, my Twitter was blowing up. Things are going crazy. Um, and it's really exciting just to see all the new offerings, all the new enhancements, uh, behind the whole OpenAI product suite. Uh, and again, I'm excited to just kickstart 2022. We're off to a great start. Um, and so anyways, all together, uh, you know, I hope the audio is better this episode. Situation with Russia and Ukraine and the US, pretty tense. I'm hoping for the best. Search is an exciting space. If you're working on a GPT-3-based uh, application or startup in, in the search space, feel free to hit me up on Twitter. Uh, and finally, the embeddings API, as well as the new Instruct GPT, are, are really, really exciting, exciting things. And of course, uh, I, you know, I love making fun of names for different AI products. Instruct GPT, also a bad name, <laughs> right? So, so far, GPT-3, bad name. Prompt engineering, bad name. It's worth putting out. Instruct GPT, also a, a bad name. <laughs> and so, anyways, uh, that's it for today's podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a great week. I hope you have a great day, month, evening, morning, afternoon, wherever you are, whatever you're up to. I hope it's awesome. Multimodal by Backseat Future is available on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts. You can find me on my newsletter, bakztfuture.substack.com. This is a place where I share just interesting thoughts, a lot of you know different things I'm thinking about. Uh, raw ideas. It's it's on there. Some things are better in writing than in this podcast form. Uh, so I don't even talk about it on here. I may write about it separately. Um, I mentioned my Twitter at B-A-K-Z-T Future. You can follow me on Instagram, B-A-K-Z-T Future. And of course, my YouTube, you can guess from now, you can guess by now, my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash B-A-K-Z-T Future. Thank you so much for tuning in. Have a great week. Bye.